fantastic. Look at the burst on that. That's insane. Yeah, yeah, they're bloody incredible. Have you taken photos? Oh, they've popped up. It popped. There's a great place. This whole evolution of what bread was to what bread's become and the industrialization of it, I got to witness and I got to work with bakers that thought there was nothing wrong with the bread and they were just doing the nobility of bread work with rubbish flour, rubbish ingredients, rubbish processes, right? So we didn't know that. And it was only when I started to get a bit more mature, I'm the youngest in the family, that I understand, started to understand the consequences of what's in the flour. So for example, the chemicals that are in conventional flour that are proven to cause cancer and everyone's happy with that. I don't understand how everyone's happy with that. It's not something that's right. I do talks at schools. I ask the kids, do you mind that there's one gram of cancer in your bread? Would you pay more? They all put their hand up. I've never had a kid say no. So once we started to understand these dynamics, you know, you look for craftsmen that have a different ethos. You look for a higher way. So I was taught the processes by my father and my family. So I had all that integrity and I had all that, you know, passion. But then who was going to do a bread with a different complex matrix that's going to have sustainability of the earth and going to have sustainability and digestibility and all these things? Then you find the specialness of red bead bacon. You find the uniqueness and the importance of John Reed. This is, this is Eden before she got polluted. This is Eden. And what it is, it's an aspiration. It's an inspiration for all bakers. It's a place of home. It's an oasis where you can come and see it being modeled, a truly sustainable farm to oven bakery that then services its community. Welcome to Saltgrass, a show about how local communities can engage in the climate crisis at a grassroots level. What you just heard were initially the sounds of baking at Redbeard's Bakery, a wood-fired sourdough bakery in Trentham. Trentham is a gorgeous small town between Woodend and Dalesford. It's about 40 minutes drive through very beautiful countryside from Castlemaine and just over an hour north of Melbourne. You also heard the voice of Caesar Salemi, a baker and bakery owner who is also a consultant for bakeries. In his line of work, he's seen over 1,000 bakeries all around the world. So when he speaks about Redbeard's Bakery and John Reed in such glowing terms, it should not be taken lightly. I personally know Redbeard's Bakery and John and his family because they live in Castlemaine. Redbeard's was one of my first employers in the region when I moved out here about 11 years ago. Every second Saturday for a year, I would get up, often before it was light, to go to John's place, pick up tables, tents and boxes of gear, and then on to Wesley Hill Market, an outdoor market with all sorts of stalls, bric-a-brac, secondhand records, clothes, plants, fresh veg, coffee, food and fresh bread. I would set up in the same spot each time and wait for the bread to arrive from Trentham. Customers came early, eager for the bread and anxious not to miss out. I often had to tell them to wait as the bread had not yet arrived. And once it did arrive, I would stand there selling it and giving out free samples with local, very delicious olive oil to dip it in as a taste test. Kids would run past and repeatedly take a piece of the sample bread or a nice bun until sometimes I had to tell them that they had to stop so that there was enough for other people. 
Each type of loaf had a name in theme with the red beard. Blonde, redhead, flaxen, stubble, and of course the nice buns, which was a joke on high repeat with customers. Working at the market stall for a year, I developed a love of sourdough bread which has not abated. Sliced white death, John and others call store-bought sliced bread. And once I was converted, it is true that regular bread seemed like fairy floss or dust, lacking in substance, flavour and nutrition. At the end of a shift, I would load the car, this time with all of the empty bread trays as well as the rest of the market gear, and take it back to John's house. If it was hot, he would invite me to have a swim in his pool. I knew him and his wife, Thais, as warm, friendly and generous people. They were really delightful to work for. What I didn't really realise at the time was that John was not only making delicious sourdough bread, but also working really hard and with a great deal of tenacity to make his bakery and his bread as sustainable as possible for both community and planet. Now, John has been on my list of people to talk to since I started the show, but recent developments really pushed interviewing him to the front of the list. He has just had brain surgery to remove a tumour. He'll happily show you the scar which runs from the top of his head to his neck. And I needed to catch him for these interviews before he started radiation and chemo treatments, during which he would be exhausted. So I only had a week and a half, really, to catch him. And to be honest, I was tentative to ask, as it is a very tender and private time for many people when they're facing a life-threatening health crisis. Even so, he was willing, warm and inviting, keen to talk about his life's work and his passion to share what he knows about bread making, supporting local food and farmers, and why that is so important for sustainability, and as we head into the impending climate crisis of a warming globe. So before we hear the promised episodes from Mildura, or from the artists who ran here here at the State Festival, I have two episodes for you. The first one is this one, about John and his family, as well as some of the people who work at the bakery with him. And the next episode will feature interviews from a collection of bakers and millers about a movement called Grains, with a Z, of which John Reed is a central and much loved and respected figure. These people all came to Trentham recently to visit John and wish him well. This is where I recorded Caesar, who you heard earlier. Before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge that Saltgrass is produced on Jara Country, home of the Jajarung people. Trentham, where these interviews were recorded, is also on Jara Country. We pay respects to Elders past, present and emerging. Sovereignty was never ceded. As you will hear later in this episode, Aboriginal people across Australia used grains to make bread and may be considered some of the first bakers in the world. John has been working with Bruce Pascoe to try and work out how native grains could be used in bread making today. But more on that later. Salt. Salt of the earth people. Grassroots change. Salt grass. Listen to all episodes of Turning the Goldfields Green at saltgrasspodcast.com. So we're going to start with John and his wife, Thais, and their three sons, Will, Ben and Jim, talking about what led the family into baking and how that has been for them as a family. They had all gone to the bakery that morning to help out with the hot cross bun and bread baking. We conducted the interview in the courtyard at the back of the bakery, so you may hear some sounds of doors opening and closing and people moving past us as we speak. So I just thought while we're here at the bakery, we could talk about the early years. How did you find this place and why did you buy it? 
Cheapest. So yes, casting back 16 years ago, we were on a drive into the country and we were going to Lerdadur Gorge, that was our destination, and we were with the boys and their cousins, so a big family group all going for a picnic. And on the way, we stopped by Trentham because I don't know why. Someone one, needed to, one of the kids needed to have a wee. Yeah. <laughs> so we stopped at the Cosmo. As, as, as fate would have it. <laughs> we can't just use their toilet. We have to, you know, buy something. So I think we sat down in the garden yeah, and had a drink. Yeah, yeah, maybe a snack yeah. or something. And then John went for a wander and came back and said, hey, you know, he knew there was an oven here because he pretty much knew most of the ovens in Victoria. And I, I reckon knew, you could locate every Scotch oven that's still around, I think, in Victoria. <laughs> I've got a fair idea of quite a few. So with this particular old Trentham oven, it was, I knew from coming here and having a look, that it was one of the many ovens that had been destroyed in the 1950s and 60s when all the ovens were sort of pulled down and knocked down by the big commercial baking interests. The last time I saw it before we came back, it was, yeah, it, it, the, the fascia of the oven had all been ripped out, so all the beautiful cast iron work had all been just rudely just ripped apart. So I thought, there, there we go, there's another beautiful old oven that's been destroyed. And so I just thought nothing more of it and, until we wandered down the laneway on that, that day when we came for the picnic. And, and that was in uh, 1995, and, and you came back and you said, hey, you know that old oven down there? Well, it's up for lease. And someone's restored it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so that's when we started renting this building. Tell me the history of Scotch ovens uh, in Australia, because they're quite few and far between, aren't they? they really special and really ordinary at the same time, because they were basically every single loaf of bread that came out of any bakery in Australia from colonisation right through to the 1930s, every single loaf of bread was basically came out of one of these beautiful old brick wood-fired ovens. So they're incredibly ordinary and I guess that's why they all got pulled down as well because they were so ordinary people didn't value them. And when the big commercial interests came knocking at the door and thinking about ways that they, they could actually disrupt the old beautiful old system that we'd had of small village bakeries with their own oven and their own communities around them. Their evil plan was that they succeeded with it was to buy every single one of those ovens up at above market value and close them down and, and bulldoze them basically. Yeah. And these are ovens that will last hundreds of years so this beautiful oven here at Trentham is over 120 years old and is still going strong and showing no sign of giving up anytime <coughs> soon so they were made to last and they were made to serve their individual small communities. Do you know how many are left in Australia? I don't exactly there's some that are in bad repair that are maybe not salvageable but the ones that are actually restored and operational probably you could count on i don't know two hands yeah 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 and so you guys all moved here and actually lived on site for the first few years how old were you i think i was nine in grade three yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. so i would have been seven 
Yeah. Yeah. And I would have been four or three, I think. Yeah. One, probably one of my fondest memories was Tuesday. Mum used to go to Melbourne for dance and we used to get fish and chips with dad. So that was a highlight. I was, I was still <laughs> teaching in Melbourne a couple of days a week. So I'd stay down there with friends. And yeah. so the boys had boys night. Yeah. Couple of nice. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was, which was, was pretty, pretty fun. fun. Yeah, yeah. So we used to cut, wake but up in the morning and get ready up here in front of the warm oven in winter because it was just so chilly down in that house. Like and Trentham in winter as well as like yeah, yeah. There used to be snow yeah. some days and like ice all over the footpaths and roads, and yeah, so it's very chilly. And there's you know no really heating or insulation in that tiny little hut, and so it was like we used to come up and stand by the fire to get warm and have breakfast up here, and just like the bread would be coming out, so we would have hot bread. Yeah, not even toasted, just have fresh bread. Mm. Um, yeah, it was really it was crazy. crazy. You'd take your school clothes with yes. you and you'd run up in your jammies and get dressed in front of the oven. <laughs> yes, what a nice time. And Jim yeah. used to, because he, he was at kinder, so he had a bit longer in, do you remember, you used to stand on a little stool, give you a little bit of dough and you'd make a big mess. <laughs> so you've all come here today to do a little bit of baking and help with today's round of bread. How long has it been since you've done any of that? Since, since we were here... <laughs> Yeah, it's been a long time since I've done it. bread making here. We do a little bit at home and I've done a little bit by myself, but since we've made bread with Dad here, it's probably been 10 years, I think, for me. Almost maybe since we lived here. Yeah. I used to come down when I was 15 and work with my Auntie Jude, so Dad's sister. And also you used to come down for a few shifts, I remember, as well. And we used to do shaping on Saturday afternoon, so I used to do that, but that was, yeah, that was eight years ago as well, so I haven't been really done any baking since then I yeah. feel like making yeah. like yeah. the hocus buns is such a nice kind of motion that you can do <laughs> yeah. with both hands very circularly circularly how nice so was that, that was, this morning it, it was, was yeah, so yeah, nice so to have lovely. us all around the table shaping together <laughs> it was buns. so nice yeah, yeah. the smell yeah. and the stickiness they're so sticky yes yeah juicy <laughs> so nice. do you remember when John and Jude created the nice bun recipe because you were in grade one then, yeah. and I think you did it for your... I had that school project where I had to like yeah. <clears throat> write the history of an invention that someone had come up with oh, inside really? of the nice bun. <laughs> and I think... That's awesome. Important invention. Important invention, exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> integral to the, uh, to the so foundations funny. of our... Changed the shape of history. Our society. <laughs> um, and I think, I think I remember putting on there that my buns were the inspiration for the nice bun. <laughs> and I have stood by that for 18 years. That's been my claim to fame. It's been the inspiration for the nice bun. That's yes. Yes. <laughs> well, I've always loved the nice buns because I love hot cross buns and they're only available part of the year. Yeah. But the nice buns are available all year. Yeah. I love that. Yes, pretty special. <laughs> and when you used to do the bread stalls and sell, sell the bread at the markets, did you have customers complaining when the hot cross buns were on because they couldn't get the nice buns? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, it was like a month for Easter buns where you couldn't get nice buns and there were the, the nice bun addicts were... Yeah, know, get a bit cranky. cranky. A bit cranky. <laughs> <laughs> Just have yeah. to say there's not enough room in the oven to bake yeah. all of them. Yeah. And they said, well, I'd rather have a nice bun than a hot cross bun. <laughs> so you moved up to Castlemaine as a family and then 
John, I guess you were commuting and Ty, you also <coughs> worked here a lot and you did lots of market stalls with the bread for a long time. And this the boys all worked front of house and on markets. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Yeah, more recently than, than the baking, like we've all like been working in the cafe for like, yeah. oh, I mean, I think I might have done like a year or two, but you guys have actually done more than me, I think. Yeah, like five years I think I worked yeah. here for, which was like a while. It was my first hospitality job, which is very nice. But I think that we... It just worked for us to do front of house because dad has always sort of said that we're able to dabble in a little bit of baking but we can't make it our career until we turn 30. <laughs> we have to try something else before we before we ha- go to baking and so I think that was like partially why we never really were always there like we were definitely always up for every now and again to come in but Mm. no solid shifts as bakers just because we were trying other things as well Mm. which I think is a great such a nice thing to do to your kids rather than I don't know forcing them into doing the family business Mm. you say actually no (laughs) you're not allowed to do the family business you know you can do it if it's really something you're passionate about and something you really want to do when you turn 30 but not until then yeah, you look at so many families who have a family business and it's like there's an expectation, even though it may not be spoken. It is, you know, it can be really joyful being in the family business and it can be for you, but it's also, I think it's really nice to give kids the freedom to really dream beyond, you know, whatever their parents are passionate about. So for me, yeah, totally, I want them to be all bakers, but, you know, I've sat on my hands and said, no, you've actually got to get out into the world and give it a red-hot go, and then if if you're still keen, come back. Do any of you think you might want to become a baker? Ooh, well, hmm. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't say yeah. Probably could not. Be, could be, yeah. Probably not. We've yeah. seen, like, how, like, hard work it is I guess getting up you know all hours of the morning and driving and down from Casamay to here and yeah it's a very big job I feel like and at the moment we're talking a lot about it aren't we about what you guys are going to do in the future yeah yeah talking about what jobs work and what jobs don't work for you know family or relationships or you know yeah it's been a big family topic actually lately Mm. and health and well-being and survival so many Mm. things go into actually having a decent career that and you know people shift and change a hell of a lot nowadays it's Mm. not as though you i said i didn't find baking till i was 30 you know that was took me that long of trying to hold up other jobs that i thought were okay but never felt right and baking, baking just felt so right when i got there so tell me the story of how you found baking <laughs> I had a career crisis, sort of. I'd been working in publishing and had got a, a job in Hong Kong as working as a publisher for a big publishing <coughs> house. And Ty and I were going to move to Hong Kong together to live there for, it'd have to be three or four years to make the, the move from Victoria worthwhile. And we just started pulling at that string. You know, but but hang on, that if we go three or four years, then you know, when are we going to be thinking about kids? Because we're you know getting not older, but you know, older than some of our our friends. So we, that little string started to get tugged at, and by the time you know, I think within the time of actually going from accepting the job offer and then starting to pack our stuff and get our airline <coughs> tickets within a week or two the entire fabric un- unraveled in front of us mm. and and basically i realized that there's no way i could work in publishing because it was a 50 to 60 hour week and that was the expectation 
and that I was going to be a shit dad if I did that. Mm. And I did just everything fell apart. I, there was nothing left to hold on to. So I ended up working then for 12 months in a florist. You know, giving up publishing altogether <laughs> and having so a nice. total career breakdown and realising that I needed to find something that worked with having a family yeah. and, and not being a, a total disaster as a dad. So that, that, was, a, that was a major <laughs> crisis at the age of 30 or whatever. And can you tell me honestly, though, that you don't spend at least 50 or 60 hours a week baking? <laughs> that that is absolutely true but it's it, but the fabric of our lives has been one where you know as a small business we've been very intimately part of each other's lives whereas if i'd gone off to a publishing house you know 50 60 hours a week i just wouldn't have seen the kids at all and ty how about you how did you fall in with all of this and find your way amongst all of this i taught at series for 10 years helped establish the environmental education programs there with Eric Bottomley way back in the 90s and it was always a dream of ours to move to the country and John was baking at home and I'd always baked bread myself as well as a as a kid and a teenager because my gran had always baked bread and uh, but I was only using yeast then I didn't even really know about sourdough so so John was doing sourdough at home we always had this little dream oh let's let's move to the country and have a bakery in the country at series, you know, both of us were very involved with all that sustainability and cultural richness and social equality and and so all those fundamental values, you know, are part of our lives. Well, John and I actually met teaching as, as science teachers and at the Gould League many years ago and so all that was just a natural progression really to when we moved up here that the bakery became an extension of what we really want for the future of the planet. So, you know, redesigning our food systems and growing vegetables, which, you know, are in the paddock just over there now. That's been a long time dream. It's taken 15 years for us to get the veggie garden going for the to use in the kitchen. And, you know, all John's work with all the, the farmers over many, many years, establishing those links with all the local beautiful producers who grow vegetables and, and wheat and grains in a really sustainable way that really replenishes the soil rather than depleting the soil and you know doing it in terms of local climate and very low transport zero refrigeration and we're just reducing that whole impact on the planet and so I guess yeah yeah in terms of the actual hands-on baking I've always baked at home on my own I've I, I plop the bread into the tins. I'm a very speedy sourdough baker, but it's so forgiving. Mm. So I got away with it when the kids were little, very little. You made beautiful bread. You always have. Yeah, I love it. I do love yeah. making it. Your I, bread's super special because it's, you know, it, it's out there with a heap of grain in it. And, yeah. You know, actual, you know, seeds and, and lots of texture. It's beautiful. Yeah, I do. It's bread. really, yeah. Yeah, it's fun. So yeah, I do love making bread at home and it fits into the overall philosophy, I guess, of what our life has always been about and what we wanted, the sort of world that we wanted to bring our children into and and leave behind us for our great-grandchildren. So, you know, we're so proud of of how Redbeard's evolved and we're so fortunate that so many people have joined us in the journey along the way. In terms of the hands-on, I just, I pop in and out and try and help with overseeing things and in the I've done a lot of markets in the past I remember when we lived here the boys they'd have a bath at night 
and instead of their jammies, put them dressed in their clothes, mm-hmm. put them to bed, and then in the dark, John would be baking. I'd get them out of bed, pick them up, put them into their car seats, <laughs> and they'd be already dressed, and they'd go back to sleep. Then John and I would load the car up with all the bread and the gear for the market, and then we'd drive off to the market in the dark and then get there at dawn, and I'd be setting up, and gradually the boys would wake up, and they'd be in their clothes, and we'd all run the market together. Wow. you know. And they were allowed $2 to go off and spend at the market. And, <laughs> <laughs> and if I needed to go to the toilet, you know, they'd all be in charge of the store. But I'd have to quickly run away so yeah there's some very fond memories of the beginning and and I think I think the initial cafe was set up because I was still teaching in Melbourne and so I would used to go to the hard rubbish collections in the fancy suburbs around Melbourne after I taught on Tuesday and Wednesday nights and I'd pick up you know laminex tables and vinyl chairs and you know, load up the back of the station wagon drive up here and that's the way we set up our cafe in the beginning, it was from hard rubbish. Mm. Yeah. So it sounds like the sort of environmental principles and the the health and well-being of the earth and the community are really fundamental and have been right from the start. I guess, yeah, you're right. It's integral and fundamental to the, the way the business has evolved. I guess the focus has always been about building community. So that's been the overarching thing that has, has kept us hooked into our beautiful community around Trentham and Castlemaine has been just that idea of yes we're a bakery yes we're a business within this community but the thing that really not just drives us but it is absolutely fundamental to who we are and how we are in the world has been yeah the the idea of building something better in the world you know moving with all of our other beautiful community members who are involved in so many fabulous ways of community building to tie into that and just build a better future for us and our kids and the the planet and that that has been yeah absolutely integral to every decision we've made so when the, the temptation has been there to franchise or do a second bakery because that's what the accountants are always pushing me to do I always said nah we actually got a what what I want to build is actually a model for other bakeries that can work totally within their community so part of their community totally supported by their communities and not trying to do more than that be happy with that as the most fundamental unit and way of actually not just doing business but actually doing yeah community I've seen it as a really important role of ours to actually help evolve supply chains I I think one thing that didn't really exist in a way that was going to work for our bakery in the early days is just where to get decent grain and flour and how to support farmers to actually dream about how they might supply a bakery like ours when they were ready so there was a lot of cart before the horse you know we actually set it up and said okay now we we actually need farmers to actually make this happen you know so it was initially we got flour and grain from wherever we could but at every opportunity we went and fundamentally in in every way supported financially you know in every every sense supported young farmers and old farmers and you know people who wanted to give it a red hot go we just said yeah 
we will buy your grain, we will buy your flour, you know, this, this is what we want to do. We're going to give up on the bigger supplies we've been using as soon as we can. We we're going to buy from, from you and support you and stick with you. So that, that's been really important for the way we've been supported. I mean, you get what you give, I guess, in that, in that sense. So we've been so fortunate that people have been prepared to take the risk of supporting us and that's... You know, that's how it works, I guess. And where we could, we, we guaranteed crop, so we, we would pay ahead. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, before the season, you know, to, to help share the load with the farmer if it had been a bad season and their crop didn't work, then rather than them taking all the loss, we'd share the loss with them. We've tried lots of different models in that respect, so mm. lots of ways of actually helping, you know, farmers get going. Mm. Yeah. And how did you get your sourdough starter culture and how did you learn to bake in this way? Like, was it a steep learning curve? You bought the bakery and then figured it out or what happened? No, I started baking you know, well before we got the bakery going. I think it was that earliest experience at Natural Tucker in, in Nicholson Street in North Carlton, just with a, a mob of other bakers in one of Australia's earliest sort of reinvention of sourdough baking. Because sourdough baking is like... You know, we shouldn't even call it sourdough baking. It's you know, it's baking the way baking used to be, and it was, you know, it's just doing doing bread. All bread was sourdough, you know, 80 years ago. So, yes, I was really lucky to just fall into a friend invited me to come along to just shape some bread. It happened to be Natural Tucker Bakery that I it was my first experience, and so yeah, that was just super good luck. And as soon as I was in there and amongst a crowd of bakers it was just love at first sight for all of us and it was just like, there was no turning back it was such a beautiful craft for me just ticked every single box so you, you use your body in a really big way so you know really use your body hard and use your brain as well and you had to think through stuff so it was just a combination of everything that the whole craft of baking just absolutely hooked me straight away. And have you seen your fellow bakers from that same time period go on and, and do amazing things as well? Sure, yeah. It's, it's sourdough captured the public imagination sort of in recent years, but for the last 30 years I've been involved, it, it's just been a steady increase. It hasn't, been, hasn't felt like a fad, and I'm really hoping that it doesn't you know, turn into a fad. <laughs> a fad. I don't, just don't think it can because it's just fundamentally a different way of approaching the world. And so at its... At its heart, it's the most beautiful. <clears throat> like, like with all really good crafts, the further you dig into it, the f more you realise there is to do. And it's like this amazing landscape just evolves in front of you. The further you work into that landscape, the bigger it becomes and the more fascinating it becomes, the more sucked in you get. It's one of the really beautiful crafts that humans have done forever. That was John Reed with his wife Thais and their three boys, Will, Ben and Jim. While at the bakery that morning, I took the opportunity to talk to some of John's bakers and ask them what it meant to them to work at Redbeard's and learn from John. Shorty was filling in. He'd come back to help at the bakery while John was ill, as several former Redbeard's bakers had been doing since John's diagnosis. Lisa and Dave are both current bakers at Redbeard's and both, when I spoke to them, had just come off very long shifts which had started around 11pm the night before. 
So forgive them if they sound tired. So you're called Shorty? Yep. <laughs> How long have you known John and Ty and, and been involved with this bakery? Probably five or six years. Turned up here one day and John on Friday afternoon has an open kitchen where he invites everyone to come in and see if they like doing it. And I just never went away basically until he offered me a job. But before this I was a baker in a commercial bakery. I figured there was more to baking than just what commercial bakers were doing and fell in love with the place. So what's your experience been of working with sourdough as opposed to baker's yeast? Oh, I love it. Yeah, yeah it's a, you've got to treat it right. It's a bit trickier. Yeah. But, yeah, it's just the best. Yeah. 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 Commercial yeast is quite volatile. It's pretty hard to mess up commercial yeast. Yeah. Whereas this is, you know, it's an art. Yeah. Always has been. It feels old world yeah, in well, here, you know. If you had to come in a hundred years ago, nothing would be different. Maybe the mixer, you know, but uh, everything else is the same. Yeah. The process is the same, the doughs are the same. Yeah. And in a hundred years' time, the same thing will still be good. What are these cloths hanging from the ceiling? They're linens. Yeah. So we use them on the Viennas where we don't put them in tin. Linen won't pick up any lint or leave any lint behind in the dough. So that's why we use the linens. Yeah. And they, as you can see, they're stained a little bit from years of wear and tear and that adds to the flavour. It's like an old teapot. You never wash a teapot and it builds its own character. Same with the linens. So big, isn't it? Yeah. When you talk about throwing the Wicked Witch into the oven, you're like, there's yeah. plenty of room for in an oven like this. I like to say you can get a whole classroom of children in there. <laughs> Because our oven's four metres by four metres, it's a bit hard to get stuff in and out. So we use those big long sticks to push the bread in and out. They almost look like oars on a boat or something. They do, don't they? <laughs> <laughs> Again, age old, they've been around since Noah was a lad. Yeah. And I noticed some like old, very, very worn out ones are now pride of place hanging on the wall yeah, in the cafe. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So Lise... How long have you been here? Well, I started working here as a chef, because I'm a chef, and that was over six years ago. And there was a baker here called Max, Max the French baker, and he was leaving, and so they were looking for other bakers and thinking of training people, and I just said, well, how about training me? <laughs> so then I just started learning how to bake, but I totally fell in love with it, the whole process, and it's just such an interesting... Thing. compared to cooking it's very different to cooking like I didn't think it would be so different but the whole process is so many different variables that you have to take into account and every bake is different there's just so much to learn I've only been baking for just over a year but I really just feel like I only just started in a way yeah so the fact that every bake is different is that because you're using live cultures and things just change and it's what maybe why they call it an art rather than a science yeah absolutely well that's that's one of the things you're using live cultures but it's also got a lot to do with temperature temperature of the room temperature of the flour temperature of the water all these different things and then the and then also the the flour so flour can vary from season to season so you can you know be baking one day with one flour and then the next week you get new flour and it's totally different you have you might have to change the recipe a little bit yeah. So it's, yeah, it's really fluid and you're always 
tweaking things and getting used to things and it's really interesting like that like it's so many variables and different things you have to take into account it's not like just sticking to a recipe and doing the same thing every week you might accidentally like this morning I made the hot cross bun dough a bit hot it ended up being like 31 degrees after I'd made it which is really a bit hot for dough but so what I did then was I split it into two tubs and put it under the table so it meant that it that slowed down the bulk proofing before I then had to remix it so little things like that you sort of learn how to how to control it a bit. And you've been learning from John? Yeah, I was learning from John from day one, which has been amazing because his knowledge is just, he's got such a depth of knowledge and he's really handy to have around so you can just ask him, what do you think, you know, can you feel this dough and what do you think about this and should I put this in the oven now and so all those kind of things. So I just feel like so grateful that I was able to learn from him because, you know, he's a real master of the trade. When I first started learning, I was quite, was kind of scared. I was a little bit nervous because we'd just been through the grains conference here and John was quite stressed out and I'd seen him get a bit angry and stuff. And, you know, after working here for five years, I'd seen him get a bit cross and stressed. So I was thinking, oh God, I'm, you know, a bit nervous about learning how to bake with John because he might get cross and stuff. But not once did he ever get cross with me and I made so many mistakes and so many stuff ups and not once like ever has he ever been cross with me baking like he's just been the most lovely teacher and always says you know how wonderful the bread is even if it's not and you know so encouraging and so enthusiastic and yeah he's just been really the best teacher the best teacher for me yeah my time here has just been amazing I've loved this place working here and kind of feels like home here yeah and just really lovely people to work for John Ty really really great so oh it's interesting when I first left secondary school one of the earliest jobs I had was working at a Brumbies down in Ackland Street St Kilda and I wasn't making bread then but behind the counter and I really enjoyed the early starts but I, I then went okay I've had a couple of years doing counter work I'll go and get educated so I went and did the whole teaching thing and then after teaching tried other things eventually moving to Woodend and my sister said oh I've got a friend and he's starting up a bakery I started <laughs> delivering bread for John and Al and spent two and a half or three years doing that as well as the occasional market and then for a number of reasons I stopped driving and took a break. I did a few other odd jobs and ended up with a shift or two a week at Sprout in Castlemaine. And again, that was a shaping shift and I really enjoyed that. And then when a full-time baking position came available here, I went, well, I like working for John and Al, so I'll go back. And they had me, you know, silly burgers. <laughs> so that was 11 years ago. John and Al put me through my apprenticeship here, which was really nice. They said, oh, you don't have to do an apprenticeship. I said, oh, I want to find out what everybody else is doing. And John said, yeah, that's fair enough. And it was interesting to compare the, the apprenticeship system and what most bakeries are doing with uh, what is done here, which is a lot more special. Quality of the ingredients. You're always in mass production, right? particularly at William Anglis. It's a teaching school, and they can't necessarily afford to buy 
the nicer ingredients so you're left with what the large flower industries are happy to give you a, a deal on which basically turns into advertising for them you'll rarely hear about the the smaller millers or the smaller producers going through uh, a standard apprenticeship but working here I had access to the source. Tell me what sort of things you've learnt from working with John. To enjoy the community that you build as a result of being a producer of quality food. I met Frank and Penny Porter for the first time two weeks ago. We get all our dried fruit here at the bakery from them, apricots, sultanas, currants and um, the occasional fresh fruit too. Now's the season for plums so we've got I don't know who's going to process them, but there are six boxes of of plums waiting in the fridge. And John and Al cultured that friendship slash working relationship for many, many years with those farmers. And in their own words, they're they're a small farm doing things mostly by hand at at a scale they can manage. And so they don't need to bring in the bees at certain times of year because they're small enough to rely on the local bee population and they don't endlessly bombard their crops with insecticides or weedicides around the base of the trees. And Penny was saying, on their way down, they were driving past the larger farms, the larger orchards. Uh, almonds are in, in, <laughs> in vogue because everybody wants almond milk at the moment. And the almond crops are a monoculture. They're trees and trees and trees and no grass underneath, and they have to bring in boxes of bees at the right time of year and I can't imagine that that's particularly sustainable or an enjoyable environment to work in. Whereas a family farm, you speak with the bosses rather than the foreman or the manager and you can see the impact that their industry and their hard work has their own lives. You go, oh, that's right, that's why we're doing it, for our own mental health, our own well-being. And so a sustainable business has to address that mental well-being. That was Shorty, Dave and Lise, who have all been working at Redbeards recently. Lise mentioned the Grains Conference, which was hosted by Redbeards in 2019. We will have many perspectives on the Grains movement for you next week, including John's involvement. But today, we're going to hear from John as he talks about what came out of the 2019 Grains Conference for him personally. And that is that he started working with Bruce Pascoe to grow and test Indigenous grasses and grains for the purposes of making bread. For those who may not know him, Bruce Pascoe is the author of a best-selling, very popular book called Dark Emu, which re-examines colonial accounts of Aboriginal people in Australia and cites evidence of pre-colonial agriculture, engineering and building construction by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, including the Australia-wide use of grains to make bread. This perspective is really significant in terms of Australian history because, as many people have known for a long time, it makes a mockery of what Australia is actually founded on in the British legal system, which is the idea of terra nullius, which means that they claimed that no one of any advanced culture was living on the continent of Australia. And this in turn is how Australia was colonised without any kind of treaty 
or formal agreement between the people who were already here and the people who then came in vast numbers and took over. So I asked John why he's taken this project on, why he thinks it's so important to work with native grains and how that fits in with the rest of his philosophy about baking and life. So I guess that interest evolves naturally from a more holistic understanding of agriculture and our impact on the planet and where we need to be trying to get to. So if we're going to really respect country in a way that hasn't been done by European people in Australia, we need to rediscover what we've lost in terms of our beautiful indigenous agriculture and the way it is supported, you know, thousands of generations of people. Yeah, so for me, that's a really important ongoing project that is gaining understanding and I think it's still formative so I I think we still don't actually understand totally what we've lost or what we need to regain or how we're going to actually achieve that so it feels like very very early days and thank goodness for Bruce Pascoe actually having the you know character and just incredible foresight to actually yeah put that into the conversation I, I think increasing number of us are really see that re-establishment of indigenous grains as a really crucial part of where we need to be going but it's a massively long-term project and it's insanely ambitious and given how much we've destroyed in terms of Aboriginal Australia you know culturally and and ecologically I think it's not only the most important project in Australian agriculture but it's going to be the making of us I think in terms of our broader cultural understanding of ourselves. What sort of plants have you been working with and if you've tried baking with them what have been the results so far? Oh we've had astounding lack of success. A classic in that attempt is you know kangaroo grass. It's It's a classic fail from us all of us collectively trying to rediscover indigenous grain we we know it was used widely kangaroo grass has really got a very wide distribution across a lot of australia we know it was used because there's so many good records to say that it was grown and used across a lot of australia and really fundamental to a lot of of nutrition in Australian people pre-colonisation. We know it was super important in terms of calories, in terms of nutrition, in terms of flavours and you know everything. So we know it was there and it was really important. But it was just one of, I think there's something like 190 species of Australian grass that were cultivated all over Australia. And there wasn't just one type of grass in one area. There was many grasses in every area that were not only grown and cultivated but had a whole of culinary <laughs> associations and really interesting things going on so we've got this massive history that has just been totally ignored and lost and and trashed as we just trash the landscape and just monoculture wheat over the entire landscape we've just lost so so much it makes you cry every time you walk out the door in australia because you just look at how little we've got left in terms of any sort of indigenous grasslands because they've just been totally destroyed but also just how ruthlessly we've just ignored that beautiful cultural history it's just you know and a flavor history we've just totally ignored it haven't given a damn we've run you know ridden rough shot over it yeah 
Yeah, it's appalling. And we, you know, in a, we're you know, at a point of just totally losing. Well, we have already lost probably all of the knowledge for most of those grasses, 190 grasses, almost all of it in terms of propagation, cultivation, uses. One of the problems, for instance, with kangaroo grasses, we've got no idea how to actually get the awn, which is just that long spike that grows out the end of the grain, how to remove the awn from the actual grass seed itself. We've got no idea how to do that in a way that is actually not just grabbing every single grass seed and breaking each awn off by hand, which makes a nonsense of any sort of cultivation or sensible way of processing kangaroo grass we've got no idea how to get the damn the awn off the seed because it's quite well held on but we know for a fact that it was a huge number of calories that you know were produced in that way pre-colonization and we've got no idea how those how it was done mm. and we to- we've lost it totally we don't have records to show us how to actually do the basic stuff like take the the spike off the end of the seed so that we can eat the seed it's so it's so sad and in many ways it's so sad that we've just ignored that beautiful cultural legacy we've just trashed it and look it, it's, it's so exciting on the other hand uh, to be part of you know this embryonic you know re-understanding of of what we've lost trying to really engage with the small amount of knowledge we have left of course because most aboriginal stuff is all passed on from yeah one generation to the next and without being a lot being written down so as soon as you break that a beautiful cultural learning and understanding generations of incredible inquiry into how to to make the best use out of your natural resources and how to respect you know your natural resources as soon as you wipe out a whole generation or two of indigenous people just through conflict and abusive behavior it's really hard to re-establish that and to rediscover it in the bowels of the museum in the Australian Museum down in Victoria in, in Melbourne, there's there's a collection of bread, that, there's first contact bread. So these are breads that were grabbed or exchanged or bartered or whatever by early explorers and were actually collected as ethnographic, interesting bits of stuff and were catalogued and sent and shipped around the world as curiosities, I guess, back in the day as, as part of science. And that in the Victorian Museum there's something, I don't know exactly how many, but there's hundreds and hundreds of samples of first contact bread. So these are breads that were traded or swapped or given away or just collected and that instead of being eaten they were popped into a museum collection. So uh, we have all this amazing bread that you can go and it's very hard to get access to because it's really important and special. But Bruce Pascoe has, has been allowed access to a lot of those bread samples after many years of very carefully asking to get access to it. And he's shown me photographs of, of the breads out of the collection and they are proper, big, decent, leaven loaves of bread. So they're not like a flatbread, you know, or something like that that's a bit baked on a you know, a hot rock or whatever that's just flat and uninteresting. These are big, well aerated, leavened sourdough, I guess is not a good word, but essentially these are these are not flat breads. These are leavened loaves of bread that are full of the fluffy, aerated, beautiful texture. And and these breads were baked all over Australia pre-contact. So 
yeah, so we have we have a lot of these breads that we can actually refer to and look at, and we can work out, for instance, that some really particularly beautiful loaves of bread were full of kambangi rush. You know, was one of the main ingredients for it, and we have you know evidence for yeah those 150 other grains, native Australian grains that were ground by you know, stone ground and were made into beautiful 11 loaves of bread. So Bruce Pascoe claims and I don't see any reason to doubt him and there's lots of evidence that Australian bakers were the first sourdough bakers so the first ones to actually make leavened bread in in the world we certainly have evidence of bread making that goes back at least yeah 60,000 years there is the same grain the same grasses that were used to make these loaves in the collection were being ground on stones 60 70,000 years ago and that there's evidence of the grain on the grinding stones and the grinding stones are there and there's no reason to suspect that the same techniques probably weren't used to make the bread as it was 60 70,000 years ago so we have this incredible culture of beautiful bread that is you know essentially uninterrupted you know, for that whole length of time, this beautiful bread. So that's quite an amazing, beautiful legacy that we need to rediscover. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that just, to me, that whole thing about Bruce Pascoe's book is all about citing evidence to say that Indigenous people used agriculture and consciously cultivated certain plants to do certain things with, rather than it being wilderness where people just wandered around and just chanced upon a kangaroo and happened to, you know, like there was a lot more consideration about how they controlled the environment. And so that's his book, Dark Emu. But yeah, this, all of that stuff really just reinforces this idea that there was so much more evidence of culture that was clearly ignored by white people when they came here. Like leavened bread indicates a level of, I don't know, c- culture and capacity to do co- sophisticated things to my mind and it just to me again it just sort of indicates how willful the the white interpretation of indigenous culture was to diminish and dismiss their achievement yeah i don't know what i say to that exactly (laughs) (laughs) ali that's that's exactly how i feel about it it's just it it's unbelievably ignorantly stupid pig ignorantly stupid of the white people we came and just didn't have any appreciation of what they were bumbling a lot of the time I think it's just you know dumb humans doing their thing and just riding roughshod over other cultures Mm. you know just pathetic I just want to maybe just retouch again on you know one of your favorite topics on, on all of this and that is just that I think this whole beautiful revival of amazing bread in Australia and around the world is happening at a very grassroots level it's happening in a way that doesn't you know involve corporations that involves a whole lot of people interacting with each other very locally and building food systems that are resilient and really strong and not going to be bought out and sold by the powers that have f***ed up our food system to this point so I think that incredible resilience that is so evident in sourdough baking and everything around it and the food systems that surround it is evidence that we are much bigger and far better than what the corporations have tried to do to us and that we are resilient and we are strong and we will 
you know, look after each other and look after country in a way that is imaginative and respectful and, and clever, not like the current stupid food system. Yeah. Anyway, we had the chance to not, you know, keep on doing it and we've got a chance to make beautiful, strong food systems and that's why we love the work you're doing with your podcast and the work that all of us are doing to reinvent and reimagine strong local sustainable food systems. was John Reed of Redbeard's Bakery in Trentham. My name is Alison Hanley. Stay tuned for the next episode all about the grains movement, a loose collection of people who all care deeply about creating localised, robust food systems so that we all may thrive in an uncertain future. Links to the various things discussed today can be found in the episode description at saltgrasspodcast.com. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram. And this program was made possible with the support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Find out more at cbf.org.au. Thanks for listening. Salt of the Earth people. Grassroots change. Salt grass. Listen to all episodes of Turning the Goldfields Green at saltgrasspodcast.com.